X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, June 19th, Juneteenth. Today, back in the day, on June 19, 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed legislation prohibiting slavery in the federal territories. This action effectively nullified the infamous 1857 Dred Scott decision, which held that African Americans could not be citizens. Three years later, on June 19, 1862, more than two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, slaves in Galveston, Texas, United States, were finally informed of their freedom. That anniversary is still officially celebrated in Texas and 41 other contiguous states as Juneteenth. And today, X-Ray FM and our partners, The Numbers FM, all day, will have our fourth annual Juneteenth teach-in. This year's theme is Blackness in Focus. The day will be a chance to listen and learn from black Portlanders, from business owners to activists to artists. A full schedule, you can check it out at the X-Ray blog, or you can listen to thenumbers.fm or xray.fm. Today on The Local, we'll start with your quick six. DQ Scott will have a conversation with Matt Funk and Mariam Two on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black, indigenous, and people of color. And an interview with Tony Hobson, founder and CEO of Self-Enhancement Incorporated, on moments and movements. First up, it is today's quick six local rundown. And Multnomah County is officially opening for phase one today. Woohoo! No, be cool. Be cool. Governor Kate Brown has made the announcement citing a relatively stable rate of people in Multnomah County being hospitalized due to COVID-19. A day later, however, the data changed. In a Thursday morning press conference, Oregon Health Authority Director Pat Allen said the county hospitalization data was incorrect. They blamed a glitch in data collection. Apparently, OHA had missed five additional cases of hospitalization in Multnomah County over the course of the past week, beginning on June 7th. That means, in total, the county saw 14 hospitalizations last week. The preceding week saw 15 hospitalizations. To meet the state's Phase 1 reopening requirements, a county must show a 14-day decline in COVID-19 hospitalizations. Allen did say the small decline over the past two weeks is concerning, but not enough to delay Multnomah County's reopening plan. Woohoo! Or not? I don't know. You decide. Be cool is all I know. Don't go around licking flagpoles. Get all smoochy smoochy with strangers. Don't get right in somebody's grill and get breathe on each other a lot. Definitely don't do that. Don't lick your hands and touch a bunch of other things or people. Allen said these cases don't change our overall assessment of the situation in Multnomah County. He says that's because the percentage of visits to county hospitals remains stubbornly low. Only six of every 1,000 visits are, in fact, related to coronavirus-like symptoms. He said other factors determining the county's ability to reopen are also on the right path. Governor Brown said she agrees this possible increase in hospitalization isn't worth pausing for. Brown said her recommendations from local health officials. She's confident that Multnomah County should proceed forward cautiously, as always. Remember her folksy walking on ice analogy from several weeks back? One step at a time, gingerly, ever so gingerly. Under phase one of the state's plan, restaurants, bars, salons, gyms, fitness centers, and other public-facing businesses can reopen with significant spacing and cleanliness precautions to protect against the spreading of the coronavirus. Seven counties do have to require face masks while in indoor public spaces. The face mask requirement, though, 
doesn't come for another week. Let's be really clear. Wear face masks if you got them. The only reason the face mask requirement is waiting until the 24th to be enforced is to make sure people have and businesses have a chance to get the face masks. The face mask required counties are Multnomah, this one, Clackamas, right next door, Washington, also right next door, Marion and Polk, down I-5 on Salem, Hood River over in the Gorge, and Lincoln counties, that's on the coast. She said the mask mandate is enforceable by law, but the people will not get arrested or ticketed for not wearing a mask. Wear your mask. Don't only do it because you're worried about getting arrested or ticketed. Cool kids wear masks. Along with the 14 new hospitalizations last week did bring the highest number of tested and confirmed cases in Multnomah County at 210. Here is some other recent data. As of Thursday, 141 people are hospitalized with suspected or confirmed cases across the state. 28 are on ventilators. Coronavirus has led to the hospitalization of 933 people in Oregon over the course of the pandemic. Oregon health officials reported 148 new confirmed presumptive cases on Thursday. That brings the total number number of known cases to 6,366 and Multnomah County's total number of cases to 247. And remember, the bulk of those cases came from the outbreak near Legrand. That was the Lighthouse United Pentecostal Church in Island City. The Oregon Health Authority reported four new deaths on Thursday, bringing the state's total confirmed COVID-19 death count to 187. Here's something important. The state's epidemiologist said on Thursday that weeks of demonstrations in Portland have not led to an uptick in new coronavirus cases. And the director of the OHA said last week that officials had not made a firm connection between the ongoing protests and coronavirus cases. Officials in Multnomah County have said there have been fewer than five positive cases connected to attending demonstrations. And an update in Washington state, 26,784 confirmed coronavirus cases and 1,226 known deaths. Oregon is beginning to shift its unemployment focus. The Oregon Employment Department said it has processed most of the regular unemployment insurance claims it has received. Now, the department is shifting focus to claims for gig workers and self-employed people, largely those who are eligible for the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. The department began working on a program called Project Focus 100 last month. That sounds serious. It's a two-week push aimed at processing a backlog of about 38,000 of the oldest regular unemployment insurance claims. Acting Director David Gerstenfeld said on Wednesday the department has processed about 99% of those claims. Now the department will shift towards getting benefits to the people who have not yet received unemployment benefits. The department has received about 97,000 applications for the PUA benefits, PUA. About 24,000 of those people have been found to be eligible for benefits so far. About 17,000 of those eligible people have already been paid benefits. That means about 70,000 PUA claims are left to enter into the new claim system in order to process. Whoo-wee, that's a lot of numbers. Gerstenfeld said the department is continuing to work with private technology firms to make the PUA process less manual. That means more automatic. The department is also working on adding more phone lines. They recently got 138 new phone lines. They plan on adding another 150 phone lines in the coming weeks. The department also intends to hire and dedicate at least 60 people to PUA work. In the next few days, the department will be posting more details about its plan for processing those PUA benefits. Listen, I know that's a bunch of information, but we also know there's a bunch of people in our community this impacts, including some people we've talked to in the last week. Catch this vote by mail lovers. Oregon voters cast a record number of ballots in the May primary. Despite the ongoing pandemic, Oregonians cast a record number of ballots May 19th. That's according to the final results released Tuesday. More than 1.3 million voters participated in that primary. That exceeds the old primary record set four years ago by more than 100,000 votes. 
And of course, we can give thanks to the fact that we conduct elections entirely by mail. Oregon voters didn't have to go to polling places, wait in long lines where they risk being infected with COVID-19, unlike some other states. For the last four years, Oregon has also been automatically registering voters using driver's license data. Shout out to the bus project. That's also led to a big increase in the number of registered voters from just under 2.3 million in 2016 to over 2.8 million now. That's like a half a million new eligible potential voters. Many states were forced to delay their primaries because of the pandemic. Those same states have been struggling to provide more mail balloting. Congressional Democrats have been fighting for more funding to help states boost mail voting, including yesterday's national forum featuring Senator Ron Wyden. President Donald Trump has resisted that, charging that vote by mail might mean more people got to vote. No, that's not his argument, but that's the argument that has evidence. And Portland police leadership is saying that Portland officers can cover their name tags at protests. They've authorized officers to cover their names and badge numbers while policing the protests, potentially creating new issues for protesters who want to identify officers who might have mistreated them. For over a week, police officers have been allowed now to tape over their name tags with their assigned personnel numbers. During nightly protests, officers have been seen with these single and double-digit numbers scrawled over tape on their uniform. According to a police spokesperson, former Chief Jamie Resch authorized that change before stepping down. Resch made the decision after officers were allegedly being doxxed. That's when personal information like home addresses, cell phone numbers is discovered and released online. Protesters who wish to file a complaint can take that personnel number on that piece of tape to the Independent Police Review. That's an agency that investigates misconduct allegations against the police. According to Agency Director Ross Caldwell, the agency has a list of staff's personnel numbers and can match those with the names. If the complainant was directly involved in the incident, the officer's name will be sent to them in a letter. But if the person filing the complaint is a third party, like someone who watched it on video, there would be an investigation, but the officer's name would not be passed on to the person who prompted it. Caldwell said the review agency is just starting to get the complaints with these numbers instead of names. The agency has received dozens of complaints about interactions with police during protests since the protests began. And TriMet announced on Wednesday it is reducing existing police contracts by six positions and redirecting the additional funds totaling $1.8 million to community-based public safety approaches. The agency said it will initiate three efforts to inform a reimagined public safety approach to conduct community-wide listening sessions to gather feedback from riders, frontline employees, and community members on the best approaches to provide security, establish a panel of local and national experts to advise TriMet on national best practices for transit security, equity, and community engagement, and pilot a new non-police response resource such as mobile crisis intervention teams for mental and behavioral health issues. And happy Juneteenth, everyone. Governor Brown says she will introduce a bill in the 2021 legislative session to make Juneteenth an annual state holiday commemorating the freedom of slavery in the United States. In her announcement, Brown said, and here's the quote, this year, celebrating black freedom and achievement of Juneteenth is more important than ever as people across Oregon and the United States and around the world protest systemic racism and unequivocally show that black lives matter. I encourage all Oregonians to join me in observing Juneteenth by getting educated on systemic racism in this country and getting involved in the fight for racial justice. Earlier this week, the city of Portland announced it would make Juneteenth a paid holiday for city workers. And if you're asking what you can do to support the black community and promote anti-racism, there are lots of ideas. There are many organizations in Portland fighting systemic racism. If you can, you could support groups like the Black Resilience Fund, the Portland NAACP, the Urban League of Portland, Kairos PDX, Self-Enhancement Incorporated, Black Lives Matter Portland Chapter, Generational Resistance PDX, the Equity Giving Circle, and Don't Shoot Portland. 
You can volunteer, donate, become a sustaining member, and you can follow up. You can educate yourself and others. You can read books. You can listen to TED Talks. You can explore new podcasts. You can listen to the teach-in on the numbers and x-ray all day today. You can talk to your neighbors. You can talk to your family. And you can vote. If the American story is to be celebrated, it has to be a story of improvement, of striving for redemption and greater equality, of bending the arc of the moral universe. Happy Juneteenth, everybody. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. In the Portland metro area, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color represent 52% of COVID-19 cases, despite comprising 28% of residents. DQ Scott brings a conversation with Matt Funk and Miriam too on the disproportionate and equitable pressure of COVID-19 on people of color in our community. About, you know, about a couple weeks into this, uh, into COVID, people were like, oh, what a, like, what are your thoughts? Like so many xenophobic attacks, it's just so crazy. I'm like, is it crazy? I don't know, okay, everyone's scared. And yes, xenophobia is real. Racism is real. People are dying at disproportionate numbers, right? Mm. Misinformation is flying about, right? So you wanted my opinion, right? Now that it took the gruesome recorded murder of a gentleman on video at the hands of a thug killer cop, we, we are engaging in pain porn, plastering uh, media, of young black men and women dying at the hands of, of atrocious violence and guns for us to say, oh, okay, like, let's have this conversation about race now. Who should we talk to? Oh, you know, and what I've been dealing with, what I, I'm like, I'm not your good dog. I'm not your, your, I'm not your yellow lab. I'm not this um, model minority. You can't come to me with that. Yeah. You know, I'm not here for that. Would you ask me the same questions you would ask somebody who is a black American? Or would you express to me the pain you feel because you love black people so much? You know, and then you call people out on it and you set those boundaries and it's very uncomfortable right now. Mm. It's very uncomfortable, but it's okay. Yeah. I was just going to say quickly, um, thank you for sharing that story that you told us about uh, your your experience as a young man. Uh, I was imagining that it was going to go a little bit different direction and I'm sure um, everyone in this room and many people under the sound of my voice right now can relate to it. I thought what was going to happen is that this individual told you, I don't think of you as black. Yeah. Right? And that's happened to me a lot where, especially during high school, I went to Gresham High School. I was one of 10 black kids at a school of 1600 and I had plenty of, of, you know, ugly racist incidents and and many times it was individuals that were actually trying to reach out to me, yeah. but it was easier for them to separate me for, as a black person and not think of me as a black person because I didn't meet their stereotypes yeah. than it was for them to admit that their stereotypes were wrong. Man, that's a whole other hour long conversation right there. It is, it yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, you know, and that's the standards that we've, we've had to deal with going forward, especially. Like I, I, acting black or acting white or other thing too. And that's the thing a black people are gonna have amongst ourselves or have to do. The thing is going forward with this as well is the thing is that we're gonna have to make a lot of change with a lot of things in society. 
with white people, but people of color within their own groups are going to have to do a lot of internalize themselves and overcome a right, lot of hurdles right that mm -hmm. they themselves uh, you know, have in different ways, you know what I mean? Like maybe other countries don't deal with, such as like, I'll say like the black community and like LGBTQ issues. It's something we've like, I've gotten more comfortable with, but we still have, there's still a lot of conversations that need to happen with that. Um, I'm sure there's other cultures that have their own thing too going forward that are modern problems for them as a culture, and they have to do it too. So I, I, so definitely the immediate thing that needs to happen is the emergency issue we're having with police and other systemic issues that have been created by, well, white oppression in this country. Yep. And so let's get that out of the way. But to like make the changes, put the people in place we need in place, and have them there for the right reasons, we need to also come together to do it too. Because at the same time, another thing I'm worried about us doing is, is uh, voting like, is voting black just to vote black, right. you know? Because even if you, if you lived here in Portland for a long time, you can say that every black candidate or every black person in power has been necessarily beneficial. So they're not bad. Right. I'm just saying like, a lot of them have been good, but like, a lot of them have done a lot of bad. A lot of them tried, maybe they said, you know, they didn't do enough or whatever. But it hasn't always worked out. So it's like, I'm down to support that. Just tell me why I should do it for the right reasons to do it. You know what I mean? Like, Indeed. And so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping like we don't make mistakes along the way just because of that or out of emotional anger or anything too. Because I, mean, I know that, how we get with that stuff yeah. too. It's like I'm just hoping as a, as a community and as a people we still put the right people in place and do the right things amongst each other. Like we start to like more internalize more appropriately to go forward. Because I don't, I don't want us to just, you know, have to like, you know, just put the right person in because we think they represent us right, or to have another white person put that person in place because they speak well or they're articulate. I got an argument today with somebody that wanted to put me onto the heart, something with the Hodge brothers, with the Hodge twins. And he was like, but they're so, he's like, well, these guys are articulate. He's like, I don't look too much into them, but they're articulate and they present their point well. It's like, that doesn't mean it's that doesn't right. Mean anything. That doesn't mean it's right. There's I a mean, lot of smart people who are very evil, dude. That doesn't mean yeah. that they're good. It's like, you so, can't yeah, use that thing. He's trying to put it on me like, I'm doing something wrong. I was like, dude, I'm sorry you don't recognize these black grifters like Candace Owens and these people. Yeah. Right. Just because they're black doesn't mean you should pr be promoting them. I know you yourself are a good person and I understand where you're pulling from this, but you have to read between the lines of this. This person is not for us, even though they say they are. Don't be fooled by them. We like, have to watch out for these people. Self-Enhancement Inc. is a school, a community center, a place to be inspired, and so much more. Here are CEO and founder Tony Hobson, Jefferson Smith, and DJ Ambush discussing surviving and thriving in a pandemic and resources necessary for lasting change with equity and social justice. Self-Enhancement Incorporated is one of the city's leading multi-service organizations providing thousands of youth, families, and adults with a wide array of education and social services on an annual basis. We're now joined by Tony Hobson, the CEO and founder of SEI. SEI has grown the last decades from one week summer camp to an established agency working to serve Portland youth. How, how are you holding up? Uh, not too bad. You know, you kind of move with uh, whatever uh, is in front of you right now. You can't control some of it, so you just got to put a smiley face on it and try to make the best of a, a, a not too good situation. How is SEI going through all this? How are you dealing with social distancing, kids not being in school, changes presumably to your summer program? What are the biggest things that are happening to impact your world over there? Well, you know, for us, we were already uh, thinking about the whole uh, technology and, and the virtual world. So we had already started some processes within SEI to, to move in that direction, uh, working with our staff, trying to get them up to speed uh, on technology. So 
uh, it, it still kind of caught us off guard, but we were already thinking. So we had a few things in place that provided us a quick uh, opportunity to move to virtual classes. Um, so our students, we still were, had opportunities to get to our students virtually, uh, provide support services, you know, with our families, you know, doing virtual home visits, you know, doing client assistance by, you know, doing online shopping and groceries for some of our, some of our clients, you know, energy appointments, even virtual domestic violence support groups. So fatherhood groups, I mean, all of that just went virtual. So from our end, you know, we've been able to continue to, to touch base with folks in a in a pretty positive way. It's certainly not the same because we consider ourselves a relationship-oriented uh, agency. So that FaceTime and being in people's world and being able to, you know, look in their eyes and see what they're really feeling, I mean, we did lose that part of it. But we've tried to make the, the, the best of this situation. And actually, we think we'll be better for it because, you know, we're telling our staff and all our clients out there that, I mean, we're getting ready to move into a, a, a virtual world. I mean, I don't think we're going to ever go back quite to what it was. So if you can't get up to speed on it, uh, you're really going to get left behind. Absolutely. Uh, Tony, I am a transplant. I moved here about four years ago from Philadelphia, and SEI has been something that's been popping up in conversations and interactions with so many people. This organization has affected so many people in our community in such a positive way. Could you tell us how Self-Enhancement, Inc. has grown into the flourishing agency it is and how you helped it become what it is as a CEO? Well, I, I think uh, for us at SDI, I mean, we're, first of all, we're homegrown. You know, uh, many of us that uh, were involved with SDI from the start and me founding it, uh, you know, I mean, we, we go all the way back. I mean, to next year will be our 40th uh, anniversary. So, you know, I'm just turned 66, you know, coming out of the Civil Rights Movement, looking at a lot of the issues and challenges from the Civil Rights Movement, and then moving into uh, looking at uh, education and what was happening with African-American children uh, around the achievement gap. Uh, we just felt like, you know, either you're going to be a part of the problem or part of the solution. So you can stand around and point fingers at education and what they're not doing, uh, as we do need to do that. But at the same time, we felt like you need to be in control of your own destiny. So let's, let's develop a program where we could step in and fill the gaps for our children and families that, that weren't there. So in doing that, uh, we, we begin to grow and, and be able to provide services at the school sites and in the community in such a way that, I mean, if you are an African-American in, in the Portland, uh, African-American neighborhood, either you are going to be in SEI or your cousins are going to be in SEI or, or your family might work at SEI. I mean, you are going to get touched in, in one form or another. And we've always been there to stand up, you know, for our community in, in many ways, uh, the things that the normal Urban League or NAACP would have done, in, in some cases, SEI began to do that, and we begin to grow and, and continue to grow over the years to where now we're touching some, you know, 16,000 children and families uh, each and every year and graduating kids at a level that, you know, is probably not parallel anywhere in the nation, let alone the state of Oregon. Uh, you know, we put so much talk into how to educate poor children and children of color and shoot for over three decades, we've been graduating kids at a at 97 percentile and sending them to college. So it's amazing. You know, we do good work, and because of that, I think people respect the work, and, and black folks, I think, appreciate the work. 
with the political action right now and 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 uh, all the activity in the street with the protests, how has this affected the relationship that you have with the children that you're mentoring and some of the the, the young adults? Uh, have they coming back trying to figure out how to navigate certain things with you guys? Uh, they just tore down the uh, Jefferson statue at the high school, and I know you guys do have a relationship with um, with the school district and some of the some of the different schools. So, how have some of those conversations been? How have you guys been navigating that? Well, I mean, it's been an interesting conversation around um, both the Jefferson situation and you know young folks and what's going on now. Actually, I'll, I'll say I'm, I'm excited by the fact that uh, we have so many young folks that are stepping up, that are uh, out and being involved in, in some of the protesting. Because I've I've always said that. You know, for many of us that are older that's been doing this for a long time, the only way we're going to get this thing across the finish line is some younger folks are going to have to have to step up. And, you know, part of it is that I think it's one thing to, to step into this challenge. But if you think about this from a historical standpoint, there are individuals that basically had to give up families, had to give up jobs, and in some cases actually gave up their lives in order to move this thing forward. You don't like like to think about giving up a life, but sometimes somebody has to go that far. And I'm just trying to share that with young people to say, you know, everybody doesn't have to play the same role, but some folks are going to have to be able to say the things that are necessary to move us forward. And you see some of that going on right now. The Jefferson situation is a little bittersweet. Yeah, we recognize that Thomas Jefferson uh, owned slaves, etc. But I'm a Jefferson alumni, so for some of us, <laughs> it was never about Thomas Jefferson. It was right. about us being successful at Jefferson in spite of that and all of the racism that had been levied towards Jefferson High School for many decades. I mean, they've tried to close the school. We fought back, uh, said that, you know, it was an underachieving school. So SEI went into Jefferson about six years ago. Uh, open up our program to all students, move Jefferson from a 54% graduation rate to now an 88% graduation rate, mm-hmm. graduating more African-American students than any other school in the state. So when we think about that side of it, I mean, it's almost, for us, it's almost irrelevant who Thomas Jefferson was. I mean, it's just a name. For us, it's about what goes on inside that building. Uh, yeah. we, we watched as the former police chief stepped down, right? And she referred to you multiple times. You you weren't on camera. You must have been sitting in the front row. Yeah. When did you learn about that transition? When did you start getting engaged in the discussion about the potential transition? Well, I'll be honest with you. Uh, we had a few different conversations with the chief. We never... And, and I say we because I wasn't by myself, uh, we never had conversations with her about specifically giving up her seat. I mean, that was not our goal. Our goal was to say to her she needed to make sure that she put a number of folks around her that had more credibility. She was concerned about her own credibility and whether anyone would take her seriously sitting in that seat. So we said, if not you, then at, at least put people around you that have credibility to stand with you so that folks who don't know you well enough, if they know the other people, they may take you more seriously. So in that process, I think um, Chuck Lavelle was a part of those conversations, and we were having conversations with both him and her. And I think through that process, you begin to feel like, well, he seems to have more credibility. He seems to have more rapport with the community, perhaps 
not only having him beside me would be a good thing, maybe just putting him in the seat right now, given the situation that we're in and these times, that he would be better suited than her. We never asked for that. We weren't expecting that. So we were quite surprised when we got the call and she chose to go that direction. And we found that information out just the night before she made it public. What are some of the challenges that SEI has had to face with the coronavirus? You mentioned some of the changes, summer programs, et cetera. Any other challenges y'all been facing? Uh, You know, most of the challenge is the fact that everything is just virtual. We can't see each other. So the support uh, from a staff level is problematic. And then, you know, the the biggest change is the needs of, of, of our people out there. I mean, shoot, uh, just the, the food pantries, for instance, that, that we've had to, to get off the ground just to feed people. I mean, you had so many folks that were living, you know, paycheck to paycheck, and then all of a sudden you, you get COVID-19 and folks aren't working. Uh, and, and it, it you know, it, it's just problematic. So the biggest challenge for us is getting resources that we can now provide direct support for the hundreds and maybe thousands of individuals that are in need. And oftentimes agencies like ours get government resources that are restricted, that you can't, you can't even actually take the money and, and buy some food for someone. But the biggest challenge has, has been resources to provide direct support for children and families that are in need at a much higher level based on COVID-19 than we've ever seen before. And there is, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm maybe assuming, but I'm hoping there has been an outpouring of support from the community. People have been with you for decades since you guys started. And then also maybe even some new people are saying, hey, listen, I'm now awaking to what's happening in this country and I want to help. Is that a, is that a fair guess or is that at least a fair hope? No, that, 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 that is a fair guess that, that has been happening. And it's been wonderful to see uh, some of the new resources that have come in. There's a lot of so-called COVID COVID funding that we're getting and people are seeing the need and providing that our fear and like you guys were talking about earlier is that it will go away yeah. <laughs> you know and and but the need is not going to go away just because it's not on the news anymore and and as I say I think this is a, a hell of a moment that we're in right now but for this to become a movement it's going to have to last more than two weeks I mean people don't realize we've only been talking about this for I mean, COVID for much longer, but the other, the demonstrations and all of that, I mean, it's only a couple of weeks old. So we're hoping that that continues to be uh, uh, growing to a, a full-fledged movement uh, so that we can keep this in front of folks so uh, individuals will understand that the funding that's going to be necessary, both around the demonstrations and those changes, as well as COVID-19, are going to be with us uh, for a while. How long? What needs to happen for it to be characterized for it to qualify as a movement in your mind. And I appreciated you making that distinction. Well, to, to me, it's, it's, it's time. Yeah. It's longevity. I mean, you think about the civil rights movement. Shoot, by the time that Emmett Till got, uh, uh, was, was murdered and, and Rosa Parks uh, said, I'm, I'm not moving, we had been in the movement for a long time. And we were in the movement for a long time after that. So to me, it's just consistency. Uh, over a longer period of time, I mean, two or three weeks are just not enough for me to consider it a movement. It certainly looks like a movement when you see everybody out there, and this is unlike anything we've ever seen before. The number of white people that are out there uh, demonstrating the fact that 
I mean, we got all over 50 of our states and, and across the entire world. We got, I mean, that's different. So that certainly gives you an impression that this is not a moment but a movement. But if it, two weeks from now everybody goes back, then what? You know, you can't call, you can't say that that was a movement. So I, this, for me, is consistency, it's longevity, leading to all of the changes that we would hope would occur. I guarantee you, if in fact we don't keep this up, I mean, the only reason why we're talking about some of the changes that have occurred is because of the pressure. So if the pressure goes away then I believe that some of the decisions that we would want to see won't happen. And we need bold changes, not incremental changes. Bold change is, in, in Minneapolis, a, 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 uh, I don't know was the, the, the police chief there who fired four officers immediately. You know, it, they didn't wait for, for us to, to, to go into some discussions and they're on administrative leave. and No, you're, you're fired. Bold change is our police chief giving up her job for an African-American guy. If you want to talk about equity, that, that was immediate equity. We put a black person in the seat. Those are bold changes that we need to continue to see going forward as opposed to the small incremental changes that we're used to. What the chief said that I continue to say is that, we don't need to just make a difference. We need to make the difference. And we've been making a difference in incremental changes for years, but they don't add up to much. I mean, it would take decades for us to get there that way. And we need bold changes that make the difference. And that is Tony Hobson of Self-Enhancement. Thank you, my friend, for spending the time. All right. Appreciate it, guys. I hope we can do it soon. All right. Thanks. Be well. Thanks to DQ, Matt, Mariam, Ambush, and Tony for joining the local. Big thanks to the production team. Eximius editor Will Romy, writers DJ Ambush, Casey Colton, Kate K, Julie Oppenheimer, Joey Palchik, Miranda Selinger, writer Sherwood and Jamie Zangwill, co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thank you for the original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, the Oregon Encyclopedia, the Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, the Oregonian, Statesman Journal, Bike Portland, Street Roots, KGW, KETU, Cairo, and News Partners Bridgeliner and the Portland Mercury. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Again, remember to rate and review. Please do spread it to others. And if you have story ideas, send them to us at the local at xray.fm. Let's stick together while we're apart. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.